The story of Pentecost does not stop at verse 12, but it seemed like a good place to cut off the reading, not just because it's a long story and because we had two passages, but I love ending with that question. What does this mean? In some ways, that is the question that hangs over us every week at this very moment when the scripture reading ends and the sermon begins. What, what are we to make of this? What are we talking about today? What are we to make of these stories? What does this mean? For most folks reading that story in Genesis, they think, well, it's pretty obvious, isn't it? God is opposed to arrogant engineering on the part of humans. They're going to build a city. They're going to build a tower. It's going to be a skyscraper if ever there was one. And so the divine counsel, the let us of heaven, comes down to see what the let us mortals are doing. Let us make bricks. Let us build a city. Let us build this tower. And God's not impressed. And like some kind of divine bully knocks their Legos over. Because if you don't stop them now, they'll become like some real estate mogul owning park place and boardwalk with hotels on both. <laughs> but in recent years, scholars have actually questioned that interpretation. That maybe it's not about the arrogant building project, but more about language. And language is always more about, well, it's more than words. It's about something else. Let me give you an example. Last Thursday, my friend Bill Stancil spoke to our men's group at the Faith Pub, and I was remembering how many years ago we were on a faculty together at the seminary, and how he had come into the break room to tell us about a funny encounter he'd just had. An international student who was in his class had asked to make an appointment. He said, I want you to learn to pronounce my name correctly, and Bill was, of course, glad to do that, and he says, well, help me. And the tricky part was he had two letters, no vowels, an N and a G. And he said to Bill, it's pronounced eh. And Bill repeated it back, eh. And he goes, no, 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 eh. And Bill said, eh, no, no, no. This went on and on, and Bill's a great storyteller. And we were cracking up. I mean, it's hilarious, but in some ways, it points to the other side of language. And that is, shouldn't a student expect to have their name pronounced correctly. And if that seems eh, kind of trivial, think about regions and states and countries where they have declared an official language and you must speak it. Language can be a way of communicating, but it can also be a way of controlling. And scholars say that's what's going on in the Genesis story. It's not that they're going to build something big. It's the fact that they want to stay right here. Let's build a wall around this. Let's build a tower. Let's stay here. We don't want to be around all those other people who speak different languages. And so God confuses, or better in the Hebrew, God mixes their languages. And instead of a punishing kind of scattering, it's the notion of dispersing them among all of the cultures and languages of the earth. Read that way, the story in Acts is a remake of the story of Babel. Jews from all over the Mediterranean world have settled in Jerusalem, but they're from different countries, different customs and cultures, but, but they're all speaking the same language, Greek. 
because of Alexander the Great, who Hellenized that part of the world. And so when the Spirit comes upon them, the gift of the Spirit is the gift of languages. They reclaim their heritage. They reclaim, well, the diversity of the planet. In some ways, it's like the UN without headphones. Everybody understands. You don't need an interpreter. One rabbinic tradition is that when God toppled that tower, God did it with a mighty wind. We don't know, but it's a great story because if that's true, look at Luke's version in Acts. He says the wind that comes, it blows upon them, and a church is created of incredible diversity. When I was in um, sixth grade, you had these options of electives to take, and so there was music and different uh, drama and whatever, and, and I chose Spanish. This was a no-brainer. I grew up in Houston, Texas. There were all kinds of Hispanic folks, mostly Mexicans in our area who lived near us, and I thought it'd be great to go to a restaurant and order my enchiladas in Spanish, you know, and say, masa agua, por favor. When I went to seminary, I learned Hebrew and Greek, the languages in which the Bible was written. And if, if I thought enchiladas was really cool in Spanish, this was reading the Bible in the original languages. And then it hit me. Those are the languages of the writers of the Bible. But what language does God speak? What is God's native language? I mean, it's an odd question, I know. I can tell you the language God does not speak. My friend David Salee, who was for years president at William Jewell College, he had this young man come and speak to a gathering of students. Probably early 30s, as I recall, something like that, the man was. And he told his story to the, to the students there. He said how he'd grown up in Dallas, Texas, and how in high school he fell in with a group who, when they would get bored, would go downtown and beat up gay men. And then one night, they killed a man. Of course, he went to prison, and his cellmate was gay. And over time, they formed a relationship, a friendship, and out of that encounter with a real human being, his mind changed. And so he goes around to these events, and he tells that story. And then after he finished speaking, they opened up the floor for Q&A, and someone said, where did you learn to hate? And without any hesitation, he said, oh, I know that one. I learned it in church. Because he had grown up in a church where nearly every week the preacher said something about how God hates fags. There's one language God does not speak. It's the language of hate. The language God speaks is the language of love. Love for all persons, different colors, orientation, different political parties. God loves all persons. Annie Dillard, the writer, says, the creator loves pizzazz. Isn't that a great line? The creator loves pizzazz. Sometimes you'll hear people say, God's colorblind, but that's not quite true. God loves all the colors. God can see all of the colors and embraces all of them. It's like that box of crayons, not the little measly eight one. It's more like the 128. God sees them all and embraces all of humanity in all of its rich diversity. 
could I offer you a parable? This Thursday, this last Thursday, I went to grab a burger down at a place on the plaza so I could sit out on the patio and enjoy the sunshine. And you're not going to believe this, but seated right next to me on the patio, two guys, one of them the mayor of the town of Babel in Genesis and the other Luke, the writer of Acts. I know, what are the chances? I mean, it's crazy. I'm working on a, there where they were. And I listened in. They were having this little debate. And you've probably heard about this. Some of you have heard about this, this little thing going around. It's viral now. It's a little soundtrack, and you listen to it, and some people hear Yanny, and some people hear Laurel. You can Google this when you go home. And you listen to it, and you'd swear, well, it can't be the other one. And the scientists, had, they have an explanation for it. So these two guys, they're debating, and the one of them says, look, I've listened. It says Yanny, and the Laurels are wrong. They're just wrong. And the other guy says, why do the Laurels have to be wrong? Why can't they just be other? Isn't that a great question? Why, why does the different position have to be a wrong position instead of another position? That first guy, he lived in Babel. Second one, Luke, he, he gets it. When Luke writes this story of Pentecost, he says, now when the day of Pentecost had come, well, that's the English translations. The Greek says something more like, when the day of Pentecost had fully come, fully come, only I'm not sure that's even quite accurate. Because later in Acts, something similar happens, and this time it's not just Jews, it's Gentiles. But even at that, Pentecost hasn't fully come. We haven't embraced everyone. I mean, not really. You saw the news out of Jerusalem this week. Such stark contrast. An embassy dedicated with pomp and circumstance and music and speeches and, and slaughtering of people just down the road. Pentecost has never fully come as long as we divide and build towers and walls and insist on conformity and uniformity in one language, that's not the spirit of Pentecost. The spirit of Pentecost, when fully come, enlivens everyone, and everyone flourishes, and everyone is valued. But let's face it, I mean, Jerusalem is a long ways away. The one in the Bible, the one it's a long ways away. So I was thinking, what would it be like if we were to try to make that kind of diversity present, at least in our little corner, just in our little area. It's the Spirit's work, but we participate with it. What would that look like? And then I remembered how years ago I was preaching at a church up in the Northland, and after I got through, and, and by the way, the, the text was the one Carla preached on last week where Jesus prays, and it's a long, long prayer, but one of the lines is he prays that we might all be one. And so I said that day while I was preaching, the Royals have a better chance of winning the World Series than this prayer being answered. And it turns out I was right. The Royals won the World Series and the prayer has not yet been answered. The church is not won. We're still wrangling. So then afterwards I was standing at the back and the people were coming through the line and this woman who sings in the choir, she comes up, she shakes my hand, she said, I did not appreciate your sermon. Okay. Okay. 
Uh, I, I don't, you know, I'm just, okay. Uh, says, in fact, I never appreciate any of your sermons, always talking about social justice, social justice. And I'm just shaking her hand, you know. <laughs> oh, okay, okay. And then she says, what is that in your hand? I had my Bible in my other hand. I said, well, that's my Bible. And she said, maybe you should read it. That's what I live by. And I'm just shaking her hand. I'm a pacifist, so I won't tell you what I felt like saying, but it wasn't, well, God bless you. And for the rest, I mean, the whole way home and for the next couple of days, I stewed. I let it get to me. I mean, I really stewed. And then about Tuesday or so, I thought, I got to let this go. And then I, I thought, you know, how will, how will she ever fit me into her worldview? I mean, really. And then, I don't know, a day or so later, mowing the grass, and I thought, how will I ever fit her into my worldview? 